Jesus movement, our, uh, our saying, our hope was, we thought Jesus was returning any day. And we lived our life accordingly. We, we were kind of, um, oh, didn't take a lot of stuff seriously because we just thought Jesus is coming. So we had the right heart, but we had the wrong understanding about when he was coming. And I'm just going to jump right into uh, to the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we talked about how to deal, with, well, Jesus talked to us about not retaliating with annoying people. And uh, I know that that doesn't affect anybody in this room. Um, and so in this part, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about six different temptations that we have to resist. He talked about anger. We've talked about immorality. Uh, we've talked about disregarding the sanctity of marriage. We've talked about not keeping our commitments. We've talked about not retaliating. And now Jesus just gets to a place that... Uh, I think today a lot of people may even say wouldn't apply to them. And it's, it's about the temptation to resist passive love. And it's about loving our enemies. And um, you may think you don't have any enemies. But it's becoming more and more apparent. Um, if you believe life begins at conception, you have a lot of enemies. If you believe marriage is to be between a man and a woman only, you have enemies. Um, I, I heard one of the uh, one of the people running for uh, for president or trying to get the nomination for the Democrat Party, and he made a statement. He said, "Don't don't tell me you're a Christian. Show me you're a Christian by accepting things in our culture." And that's not what love is. Love is not accepting. And so if you're not accepting the things in our culture, and, and we just need to know that the, the next big attack that's going to come in our nation is our faith, is Christianity. We are going to be the enemies. They're already, I heard this week, they're already calling Christianity, um, you know, a, a white supremacist religion. And so we just need to know it's coming. And as it comes, how are we to respond Jesus lived in a time where his message um, was not the popular message. His message was um, a message that made a lot of enemies. A church over on Dalton Avenue. I'm going to be speaking at um, a church over on Dalton Avenue. Uh, the, the pastor is from Nigeria. And... Um, he mailed out these postcards all over Azusa that looks like a, uh, a revival in Africa. It looks like the, the flyers I saw when I was in, uh, in Africa. And, and uh, it's gonna, I'm supposed to have a Good Friday message. And, and the last few weeks, I mean, I've been trying to find out who called that Friday Good Friday. You know, I mean, it wasn't really good for Jesus. Um, and... Uh, it's good for us. That's right. And the, the truth is, I looked and nobody knows how it began. Some people think it was God Friday and it became Good Friday and became Good Friday because it was good for us. But 
The most challenging part, I believe, coming for the church is to love our enemies. To uh, what does that mean? How, how does that look? And it means to act in the opposite spirit, to actively respond in the opposite spirit that, um, that they are going to have toward us and that some already do have toward us. Um, and it's loving them as opposed to passively avoiding them. And so our responsibility is to aggressively love and not to passively avoid. And my personality is either to passively avoid or to get really bitter and angry and, and to have thoughts I shouldn't have. And, and Jesus knew that that was our nature. And so he starts this part addressing something that over the years the Pharisees had distorted the law. And so Jesus begins by saying, you have heard it said, which he says on all six of these points. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that isn't what the law said. What the law said, I put in the verse underneath, in Leviticus 19, it says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The stranger who dwells among you, you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And so the Pharisees, because they had such a, um, such a bitter heart towards those who didn't agree with them, changed the law. And they said, you love your friends, and you heard it said, but your enemies. And that's what the Jews are being taught. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I'm here to tell you, that's not the heart of the word, and that's not what the word of God says. And so they took out, the Sadducees took out, the Pharisees took out as yourself, because the, the, the law said you should love your neighbor as yourself. They took the as yourself part out. And they changed it to, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And for the Jews, Gentiles were their enemies. They called Gentiles dogs. And so that, that enabled the spiritual leaders of Israel to justify their bitterness and their hatred towards the Romans. But also it allowed them that any Jew who was in disagreement with them could also be their enemy, and it was okay to call them an enemy and to hate them. And so they lived in revenge towards fellow Jews, and they lived in what we would call today racism toward the Romans. And um, Jesus tried to correct some of that when he gave them the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, you know, Samaritans were, uh, were Jews who had a different view. For, they were kind of like the religious Jews today in that they don't pay attention to the prophets and they don't pay attention to the law. They just have the Pentateuch. In fact, the Samaritans wrote their own Pentateuch. They took the first five books of the Bible and they changed it somewhat. And they didn't believe that Jerusalem was the center. They believed that Mount uh, Gerizim was the center of their faith. And Shechem, where Samaritanism, as it were, began, they believed that was the center of everything. And so there was this great opposition between the Jews and the Samaritans because the Samaritans believed they were the true Jews and that the rest of the Jews were false. And so there was this, 
this bitterness between them. So when Jesus gives this parable, when, when, he's, when Jesus says you should love your neighbor as yourself, that, that, we, that we read the story in Luke 10, they, they asked him, and they said, Lord, who's my neighbor? And the Lord chose to use one of their enemies as the picture of who their neighbor is and what a neighbor looks like. So any human being, regardless of their ethnicity or their religion, according to Jesus, is our neighbor. And so when it talks about loving our enemies, it says in verse 44, Matthew 5, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So when Jesus says that we are to actively love our enemies, I wanted to bring into a context that we can understand. If, if we are going to stand for righteousness, we, we have a choice right now. Because of the, the tension that is in our nation, because of the tension, let's just talk about abortion. Because now there, there is a faction that has gone to the extreme that says... After birth, in fact, I, I listened to a debate that happened this week. Um, this this young girl stood up and argued with the speaker, who was part of a pro-life group, and they were talking about a baby who was born premature, and should they put that baby on the life support systems they put them on to make sure that they go. And this girl was arguing that baby is not a life. The baby is not a life if you have to put a machine on it to make it breathe. Therefore, you shouldn't waste your time, and it's okay to, to terminate what that is. Now, that, that is where we are going. That is how our enemy thinks. And they look at us as their enemy. When we stand and say no, life begins at conception. You know, we're all ecstatic about the heartbeat law, which is great, you know, because the heartbeat comes pretty soon. But the truth of the matter is, that still gives a span of time from conception to a heartbeat where it says it's okay to terminate that. And so we need to understand that we are going to become more and more the enemy, even though, and this is how it is um, with an antichrist spirit, even though the majority of Americans are, are becoming more and more opposed to abortion, the loudest voice is the one that's not just for abortion, but the one that's for infanticide. That's the voice that you hear. That's the voice that gets out amongst the public. And so when Jesus, we are to actively love these people. And he says we're to love them with our words because he says, you bless those who curse you. Blessings have to be spoken. So we're, we're to, to actively love them with our words. We're to do good to them. So we're to love them with our actions. And we're to pray for them. We're to stand in the gap on their behalf. We're to pray for them in the same way we would pray for one of our family members who is sick or one of our family members who's in a dire or, or someone in this community who's in a dire position that we would call the prayer chain together and pray for them. We're to have that same heart to pray for those who oppose and this things that is in opposition. And righteousness covers so many things that is in opposition in, this, in, in our nation right now. So this is the pinnacle of love, and, and it's not a sentiment. It, it, it's, a, 
it involves practical actions. It's not just a thought. It's not just a belief. Jesus said it's not just something I want you to think. I want you to act upon it in what you say. I want you, I want you to act upon it in your deeds. And I want you to act upon it in how you pray. So when he says that we're to love our enemies, this is what Paul said. Paul wrote to the Corinthians about enemies, and he wrote to the Romans about enemies. And, and when he wrote to the Corinthians, what he did was, in, instead of saying, you don't hate this, you don't hate that, you shouldn't hate this, you shouldn't hate that, he said, this is what love looks like. He said, let's, let's understand what love is. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love is not provoked. And love thinks no evil. Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love endures all things. So Paul didn't have to address the negatives. He didn't have to say, this is what hatred is. He said, this is what love is. And everything he said about love is in direct opposition to how we would want to respond to our enemies. When he wrote to the Romans, this is what he said. Bless those. Now he's talking about Roman believers. So these are Gentiles who accepted Christ as Messiah, and now they're being persecuted because they're Christians. And Paul says to them, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So again, he's talking about the words. These Roman soldiers, this Roman Empire, when you speak of them, don't speak words that are derogatory. Don't speak words that curse them. Don't talk about what you'd want to do to them or to their mother or to their daughters or to their children. You don't speak those things. You speak blessing over them. And he says, and, and don't avenge yourself. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Our, enemy, our enemies are adversaries whose primary goal is this, to exercise power over us at their benefit and our loss. So their goal is, for no better word, to hurt us however they can hurt us in order to accomplish their purpose. Um, and so when our enemies, that they, they want to see us fail. They want to see us lose. And so loving people who hate us makes a greater impact at a deeper level. It really is a form of self-martyrdom. Jesus said this is love. Greater love has no man than he lay down his life for his brother. To bless someone who curses you is a self-martyrdom because our flesh, our natural reaction is not to bless them, is not to say good things to them. Our, our reaction is not to do good deeds for them. Our reaction is not to pray for them. And so loving people who hate us has the greatest impact when we live a life of self-martyrdom, of dying to ourself in order that Christ might be exalted before him. That's, that's what's living a, a love or living a faith worth dying for, um, dying to ourself. Embracing this lifestyle does open us to the supernatural realm. And, and listen, as I was going over this this week, I thought, I said, you know, Lord, last week I talked about how to deal with annoying people and what we should say and what we shouldn't say. Doesn't that kind of cover all this? Do I have to go over this part? I mean, do I have to get down to the nitty gritty here? Because the reality is I listen to some people and I watch some people and they say things that really anger me. And my reaction is not to say, God bless them. 
My reaction is to say, God, do something else to them. You know, my, and, and, and so in, in that context, he says, we're to bless those who curse you. We're to speak words of blessings to them and about them. We're to go beyond refusing to answer their insult with an insult. We're, we're to go beyond it and that we are actually to speak words of life over them. Hard. Hard thing to do. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stand here open pure before you that I fail at that pretty often. I have a real hard time saying nice things about bad people. And it's a fierce struggle. Um, but if, if, we, if we deal with the dynamic of what it means to speak blessing, it will eventually liberate us. It will change the way we think. You know, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It also says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So... I really have to examine my heart if when someone is saying something that offends me that I strongly agree with, if what comes out of my mouth is not blessing. That kind of shows where my heart is. And, and so that's one of the things that we, that's why I love Psalm 119. If you ever have heart problems, just read Psalm 119. Almost every verse in Psalm 119 has the word heart in it. It addresses the the the. It advocates for a pure heart before God and a pure heart before people. So we're to bless those who curse you. We're to do good to those who hate you. Now, the people that annoy me right now, I don't have personal relationship with. So there's not much I can do good for them with my hands. But I do know people who, who oppose me. I do know people who, who even in the name of, of Christ, you know, oppose me. There's... There's a, a, even in the city of Azusa, as I've shared with pastors about our need to pray together, if we want to see God transform our city, if we want to see people come to Christ, we need to come together and pray. Um, I've had opposition of that. I've had, I've had pastors go to the head of the AMA and says, you should not let that man speak anymore because that's not how we bring unity in the city. So even those situations I really have to protect him because he's a brother in the Lord. I have to protect my heart on how I think about him and how I speak about him. And so we need to make sure we look for ways to do good. We need to pray for those who persecute us. Praying for an enemy, we stand in the gap for them before the Lord. We pray on their behalf. Now, I've gotten pretty good at it in praying for Buddhist monks. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty cut toward people who are pro-choice, toward people who are for infanticide, toward people who thinks Christians are bigots, who think Christians are white supremacists, Christianity. You know, towards, I, I have no problem with Muslims, I really don't. But the fact that in, in many school systems now, they're allowed to teach Islam, but they're not allowed to teach Christianity. That Muslim students are allowed to pray seven times a day, Christians are not. That, I have a hard time with that. It's not, it's not about Muslims. It's about this antichrist spirit that will embrace anything except righteousness. And I really have to protect my heart on that. So by praying for them, it will increase our love for them. If we pray out of a genuineness that we truly do want God to encounter them and come to a place of knowledge of Christ. And, and it's, it's love that causes this to happen. You know, as Jesus is on the cross. 
And he looks down. It, when you think about, I mean, Jesus, Good Friday was not good for Jesus because he had to suffer on two levels. First of all, the, the physical torture that he, as, a, as being fully man, had to endure. Um, I mean, you all know what it's like to have a baby grab your hair and pull your hair. You know, you're, going, you're trying to get it, let it go. Or, or, or if, a, if a, a, a bracelet or a watch or something gets caught on your hair and you pull it, you know how much that hurts? To have grown men grab your beard and rip it out of your face. That's got to be torturous. To have them put a, a thorn of crowns on your head and then take a stick and beat the thorns into your head and, and to whip you and to blindfold you and punch you in the face and say, if you're God, tell us who just hit you. To go through that type of torture, we think, how could we ever endure that? But when we read the story, I don't think, and that's where Jesus' forgiveness comes in. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But to know that at the moment of forgiveness, he was actually going to suffer the greatest pain of all, and that is broken fellowship with the Father. Because the moment your sin and my sin was placed upon him, God had to break fellowship with him because God cannot look upon sin. And so this eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken at that moment. So the pain and suffering Jesus went through, and he still says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. So... This passage is, is to encourage us to resist the temptation to be passive in our love. And, and by passive, you know, it's, it's really doing all we can to avoid having to love somebody who's unlovable. You know, um, the other five exhortations we talked about were temptations to resist. We all go, yeah, you know, we need to resist sexual temptation. We need to resist, you know, not keeping our word. Well, we need to resist also the tendency to avoid and to not deal with our enemies. Because if we're going to deal with our enemies, Jesus says there's only one way we can deal with them. And he's not talking about, you know, people are coming into your house with a gun who are going to shoot you to open the door and say, yeah, come on in. Do you need some bullets? Let me, let me help you with that. He's not talking about that. He's talking about these enemies that have to do with being opposed to righteousness. Opposed to God is what it boils down to. Anybody who is opposed to God becomes an enemy of God and is therefore an enemy to us. But God loves his enemies. God sent his son to die for his enemies. You know, this is love, 1 John 3. This is love. Not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sin. So Jesus says later in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he elaborates on this we have unforgiveness, which is a real easy place to get. I've, I've shared sometimes at our house church, there's a, uh, I have a real hard time with men who abandon their families, who abuse their wives, who abandon their children, and, and think they're right. And, and I have a real hard time with forgiveness. I have a real hard time even wanting to suggest forgiveness. I would rather suggest justice, and I have some pretty good ideas on what justice should look like, on how you can make sure they don't commit adultery again. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, really. But, but Jesus, he says this. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others of their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty plain... I mean, there's no other interpretation to this. You can't exegete this. You can't look into the Greek and say, well, maybe he really meant this. He said, this is it. I've already forgiven you. If you can't forgive your enemies, and, and you were my enemy... Jesus says that you are my enemy because we were of our father, the devil. We were his enemy because of our sin and he died for us. And so, you know, there are Psalms. There's a lot of Psalms that um, contain prayers to judge the wicked. And um, Psalm 5, Psalm 17, Psalm 35, Psalm 55, 59, 69, 109, 137, I think also 144. These these are specific songs and prayers that were sung to God about judging the wicked. So we're not talking about judgment on coming. These prayers are in response. They're not in response to personal injury. They're not in response to personal offense. They're in response to the wicked ones who are standing against God's causes, standing against God's purposes. And that's where those types of of, of Psalms came in. In fact, Jesus was really clear. When you read Matthew um, 23, um, that whole, the whole last part of, of Matthew 23 is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees saying, woe to you. Seven times. There's seven woes. And he pronounces judgment over the wickedness of the Pharisees. And that's not being unforgiving. That's not not loving. That's saying, look it. Because of the way you've been wicked, here's the consequence of your wickedness. With this understanding, grace is always available there. Grace is always there for those who will, will walk in grace. So they're not about vindication. They're, they're about vindication of God's glory and purpose in the age to come. And, um, and so we're told to be like our father. He says this, that you may be sons, and, <clears throat> and I put, and daughters, of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God loves evil people because it's his nature to love. And um, so he loves by providing sun and rain to good people and bad people alike. He provides food. He provides everything. And um, there's a few things I don't agree with with John Calvin. But this statement he made, I do. John Calvin talks about two times of grace. He talks about a common grace, and he talks about a saving grace. And, and the common grace is God's gift of provision given to all people in this age. So God's common grace says, look, at <clears throat> the sun's going to warm everybody. It's not just going to warm those who are good to me and who are righteous. The rain is going to fall on everybody. You know, food is going to be available in the grocery store or in the, in, the, in the fields that you plant or the animals that you raise. My grace is in grace. Uh, for the common good of humanity is going to be available to everybody. But saving grace, saving grace, the gift of salvation, is only to those who accept the redemptive work of his son. So there's two graces. And so Jesus died for us while we were his enemies. Here's what Paul says to the Romans. Again, 
For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So our standard of love is to love like he loves. We're the enemies of God, but God accepted us as his friends if we accept the work of his son. And so God loves people while they're unthankful and evil instead of waiting until they're grateful. Let me say that again. God loves people when they're evil. God loves people when they're unthankful. He doesn't wait for them to be good and doesn't wait for them to be thankful to say, okay, now I'm going to love you. Again, this is what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies and you'll be sons and daughters of the Most High. He is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. So we're to be like God. We, we are to be kind to the evil. We're to be kind to the unthankful. We're children of the Most High. In loving this way, we prove that we have received God's love. When that, when that political candidate you know, said, if, if, don't tell me you're a Christian. Show me you're a Christian. But what he was saying was, show me you're a Christian by the way I define Christianity, and then I'll believe your Christianity. But God is saying, no, show them you're my children by loving them the way I love them. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't argue with the Pharisees. That doesn't mean that Jesus didn't oppose their teachings. But what it means is when he went to that cross, when he went to that, that, that when he was arrested and they took and they tortured him, when he went to the cross, every drop of blood he shed, everything he suffered, he suffered for the ones who were crucifying him as well as the ones who had chose to follow him, and he loved them the same. And so it's, it's God's grace to unbelievers to witness God's love through us in the times they mistreat treat us. Again, this is Jesus speaking in John 13. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he says this. He talks about a reward. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? So he's saying, it's easy. It's easy for me to love everybody in this room because I think you love me. You know? If he says, don't even the tax collectors do the same? So he's saying, and a tax collector was just the symbol in that day and that age of, of the wicked man. Today we would probably say a socialist democrat. That, that's the word, and that's the type of person he's talking about. So he says, don't even the socialist Democrats love each other? You know, don't even your enemies who are bad and do all the bad things, don't they love each other? So he says, so if you greet your brethren only, if you only love the people in the room, what do you do more than the socialist, you know, Democrats who love each other also? What makes you different from them if you only love the people who agree with you? He said, don't even the tax collectors do so. So unbelievers know, they know about married love. They know about parental love. They know about friendship love. So even, you know, greedy, manipulative people who, who don't believe in God love people who love them. The essence of what Jesus wants us to understand is the true value love, that it's more natural to be affectionate towards family and friends. But if we're to be God-like and we're to be Christ-like, then we have to love the ones who oppose us. 
love the ones who disagree with us, says that you speak against us. And so Jesus says that Jesus often taught about eternal rewards for our deeds and our humility. You know, Matthew, for the Beatitudes, the last one, blessed are you when men persecute you, revile you, and speak all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He doesn't say, if you stand up to them today, your reward's going to be great tomorrow. He said, they're still going to persecute you. They're going to revile you, which means they gossip about you and say bad things about you. They're going to say evil things, which are untruths, you know, about you. And he says, why do you think you're any different than the righteous who went before you? And Jesus, whenever he talked about the righteous who went before, always talked about the prophets. And not all the prophets were righteous, but for the most part, the prophets were righteous. And he says, they persecuted them, so you're no different. But rejoice and be glad because you have a reward. But it's in heaven. So in other words, it's, it's, it's not necessarily going to change. It's not going to go away. By, by loving and, and praying for these people, it doesn't necessarily mean things are going to get easier. In praying for people in an adversarial relationship, we have to see three truths. Number one, we have to entrust ourselves to God. In other words, Jesus calls us not to seek revenge on those who mistreat us, not to try and get even, not to try and justify. We're to endure it graciously by knowing that God will vindicate us in his time and his way. Um, if we only commit, um, it is only as we commit the mistreatment to him. So this is what Peter says. When he, Jesus, was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him who judges righteously. So no one has authority to stop our God-ordained destiny. In other words, it doesn't matter what an evil person tries to do. God has given us a destiny and a purpose, and we're going to fulfill that no matter how hard they start try to stop it. But they may be the one when we have fulfilled our destiny and purpose to stop our life. But they're not going to stop us fulfilling what God wants us to do. So we can't give them opportunity to do so by unforgiving them and having bitterness in our heart. Because if we have unforgiveness and bitterness toward them, they're controlling us. They control us. If, if, we, if we lower ourselves to their level and have bitterness and unforgiveness toward them, our life is not our own anymore. Our life does, is not governed by the Holy Spirit because it's governed by the unrighteous thoughts and feelings we have, and, and it, 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 it affects the way we make decisions. It affects the way we think. It affects everything. So we have to entrust ourselves to God. Um, you know, as much as Saul tried, he could not stop David's destiny. Saul did everything he could to kill David. He threw a spear at him. He sent guys out to find him and kill him. He, he led guys out to find him and kill him. But no matter what Saul tried to do, he couldn't stop David's destiny, which was to replace Saul. 
And so we need to understand, no matter what the enemy tries to do to us, he cannot stop, he will not end our destiny. So we need to continually entrust ourselves to God, to the purpose he put us here to fulfill it. Secondly, we need to see the big picture. You know, Joseph, when his brothers showed up, and he knew who they were, but they didn't know who he was, he could have done a lot of stuff. He could have said a lot of things. Yeah, he was a little, I mean, he, he had to be a little deceptive because he wanted to see his dad. So he had to keep Benjamin. He had to set Benjamin up with the little silver cup in his bag. But Joseph spoke kindly to his brothers. Listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 50. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about to this day to save many a people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you. And then it says he spoke kindly to them. He didn't chastise them. He didn't condemn them. He didn't overbear in his authority on them. So when we speak kindly to our enemies, as God speaks kindly to us, the third thing is we need to see that we have eternal friends. We may have temporal enemies, but we have people that we're going to spend eternity with. You know, in the age to come, our greatest adversaries in the body of Christ, people that we disagree with theologically who just bug us to no end because of some doctrinal positions they take, we're going to be together for billions and billions and billions of years. So we should probably learn to get along with them now. Huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> They'll come to their senses one day. So then we're to be perfect. Walking in all the light God gives us. This is what Jesus says. Therefore be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the way we're perfect, first of all, the Bible says, none is perfect, no, not one. Then why does Jesus tell us to be perfect? If he says nobody's perfect, why does he tell us to be perfect? And the deal is this. He calls us to live in perfection by seeking to walk in the light, by seeking to walk after him. Seeking a hundredfold obedience. We can only be perfect if we are seeking a hundredfold obedience. If we're seeking 98% obedience, and, and, and we know that there's 2% that we're not obeying, let's, we're, I can forgive everybody of everything, but him is a different story. That 99% of everybody doesn't justify the 1% of not. So to be perfect, God's asking us to walk in a hundredfold obedience, and that's where saving grace comes in, because when we fail, when we fall, and you will fall, okay, because he says we'll not win every time. His grace is sufficient by the confession of our sin, because he says if we confess our sins, he'll forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we're cleansed from all unrighteousness, then we are righteous again, and righteous is the position of perfection. When we are fully righteous, we are fully perfect because we are righteous because of the blood of the Lamb. And so righteousness is the key to perfection. 
And the way we walk in righteousness is to pursue 100% obedience to what God tells us to do. No matter how hard it is, just to, be, just to obey and, and ask him what you should or shouldn't do. So we can't, we can't love Jesus with the same amount of love that he loves us. His love's perfect, ours isn't. But we're to give it our all. We're to love him. It's, it's the picture of Peter on the beach with Jesus. What does Jesus say? He, he, he says, Peter, do you love me? And he said, Lord, I love you. We'll feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. The third time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's response is, Lord, you know all things. You know, I'm loving you as best I can. And Jesus didn't say, no, you're not. No, you're not. He said, then feed my sheep. See, Jesus says, here's the picture of loving me as best you can. Fulfill my word. What's my word? Feed my sheep. Love people. And so as long as we're pushing toward a hundredfold obedience to love people the way God loves us, we'll never be able to. But Peter says, honestly, I love you as best as I know how. I'm loving you as much as I can right now. And I know it's not enough. It's not good enough, but it's all I got. And Jesus says, that's all I want. Go feed my sheep. He never said, well, Peter, you don't love me enough, so you can't go feed my sheep. You're disqualified. No. To the extent that we can love God, then we're to go and we're to walk in obedience. And so... Um, you know, power in our life is found by pursuing a hundredfold obedience, which I've said. So maintaining a sustained reach for full obedience for decades is the definition of living radically before God. When I look back on my life, I have a tendency to look at my failures. I have a tendency to look back on the times that I blew it and that I wasn't successful. But here's what the Bible tells me. When we confess our sin, he remembers them no more. It says he removes them from us as far as the east is from the west. So if we could learn to do that, if we could learn to love ourselves as God loves us, God loves us so much that we confess our sin, not only forgives us, he removes them from us and doesn't remember them. And when you come back after he's forgiven you and you say, this God who knows all things has chosen to forget your sin because you've come to him under the blood of his son and you come back and say, Lord, I just, I just got to tell you again, I'm so sorry. He says, for what? Well, you know, when I did, what are you talking about? He says he remembers them no more. That's a willful choice by God. It's not that he can't. He knows everything. He chooses not to remember our sin, not to hold it against us. And so we need to know that we are radical because we love our Father with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our might. And just remind you, when they tried to trap Jesus, and they said, and they said, Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? This is what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first command, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself and the prophets. Lands depends 
all the law and the prophets. Loving God with everything we have and loving our neighbor as ourself. And remember, he made it clear in Luke who our neighbor was. Our neighbor is, in all intents and purposes, the one who we'd want to call our enemy. We're to love them the same way that we love the people in this room. And we show that by blessing them, by doing good works for them, and by praying for them. And we may not be able to do good works for those who oppose our righteousness, but we can definitely bless them. We can speak curses or we can speak life. And our words matter. You know, the only thing the Bible says we're going to have to give an account for as believers, our sins will be forgiven. But we have to give an account before God for every non-life-producing word we speak. That's what the Bible says. That is pretty heavy. So we need to speak words of life over our enemies. We need to bless them. Every time, you know, you watch the news, and according to statistics, are chances are that most people watch Fox News. Um, and I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek. I, I just read statistics today that all the other news channels added together, it's three to five times more viewers are watching Fox at the same time than all the other stations joined together at the same time. So there is a lot being spoken. And so when they bring on the people, when they show the clips of, of those who vehemently oppose righteousness... We're not to throw a shoe at the TV and tell them to shut up. We're to bless them. We're to pray for them. And I have to tell you, I don't do a very good job of it. I'd rather throw my shoe at the TV. But that's part of our call in this day and this hour. And again, remember, it doesn't mean if we do that, that persecution is going to decrease. In all likelihood, it's going to increase. I'm just telling you now, pay attention to what's going on. Because for the Antichrist to burst onto the scene, what, is, what are the two things he does? Number one, he brings world peace. Not peace in the world peace. And number two, he establishes a world religion. So, we need to be mindful that a religion that exalts Jesus Christ is not going to be the world religion because he's called Antichrist. And Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, give I to you. So the peace that he is going to propagate is not the peace of Jesus. So we need to know what's coming is going to oppose the peace of Christ and is going to oppose the truth of righteousness. It's going to oppose what we believe. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get worse. And the thing that's going to happen with the church, the Bible's really clear. The thing that wins every time, we talked about at the beginning, that endures everything is love. But in Matthew 24, Jesus says, here's what's going to happen to the church when this starts to happen. He says their love is going to grow cold. We need to make certain our love does not grow cold. 
And the only way we can do that is to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, to pray over those who oppose us. If we don't, our love will grow cold. We will be bittered. And when your love is cold, you make wrong choices. And wrong choices have consequences. And Jesus says that the love will grow so cold that quite possibly even the elect will be deceived. And I'm telling you right now, one of the great deceptions we have to be mindful of, we have to know what we believe and we have to know what love means. Love does not mean acceptance. That's the way they're trying to define love right now. What they're saying is if Christians are really as loving as they say, then they're going to accept everything we present to them if they really love us. Wrong. That's a lie. That is not biblical. Okay? But we need to, to bless them. We need to pray for them. And if given the opportunity, we need to do good for them. That's Jesus' mandate to us to fulfill this sixth thing, to not be passive, to not ignore, to not just say, I can't take anymore and turn the TV off, but to be, to be aggressive in praying, blessing, and doing. Let's pray. Father, um, words are cheap. Actions cost. And Father, we ask that we would be known as people of action. God, if there's anything that we don't want to happen, we don't want to allow ourselves to get in the position to where our love is so cold that we have a hard time loving righteous people, let alone the unrighteous. So God, we're asking that we'd be mindful every day the love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. God, that is, that is the prerequisite and the requisite in the day and the hour in which we live. God, if we're not walking in love, if love is not the, the defining uh, attribute of our life, then God, we will fall and we will fail. So, Father, we're asking us to fulfill by this Holy Spirit that lives inside of us that we can love like you love, that we can love like Jesus loves, knowing that the result of that love is going to be persecution, lies, reviled, God, evil said against us, but to stand for righteousness and to say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So, Lord... We love you, and we covenant to give it 100% as we walk in obedience. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yes, don't forget your loose change, coins, dollars, $100 bills, whatever you just got. Over 100 people every day to eat now. Yeah, this week... Um, I was riding, the, my wife and I were riding the bike trail, and I got so enthralled with all the encampments that are on the river now, I went off the side of the road and flipped my bike. So it's having an impression on me as well. 
um, even today. Um, but 